0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 19, the seventh and last episode on the Sumerians. Last week, I covered the literature, government, and military history of the Sumerians. If you missed it, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm wrapping up the Sumerians with a look into their military innovations, some of which lasted for hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years. So let's get started. No society of the Bronze Age was more advanced in the design and application of military weaponry and technique than was that of ancient Sumer. This military knowledge helped to sustain the society for about 2,000 years. The almost constant occurrence of war among the city-states of Sumer for 2,000 years spurred the development of weapons and tactics far beyond that found anywhere else in the world at the time. The first war for which there is any detailed evidence occurred between the states of Lagash and Uma in 2525 BC. In this conflict, Iantuam of Lagash defeated the king of Uma. The importance of this war to the military historian can be seen in the commemorative monolith, usually referred to as a steel, which Iantuam erected to celebrate his victory. A few fragments of this monument survive today, and I'll post photos of them on the podcast's Facebook page. It was dubbed the Still of Vultures by archaeologists, owing its name to its portrayal of birds of prey and lions tearing at the corpses of the defeated dead as they lay on the desert floor. As a note, there are no native lions in this region today. Some researchers theorize that the lions were perhaps Barbary lions, now extinct, a grand species larger than that of the African lions of today. But the assumption that they are Barbary lions is a bit problematic. You see, Barbary lions lived in North Africa, far west of Egypt. And remember that other researchers think that the Sumerians had no contact with the Egyptians. So how would they know what these lions looked like? It doesn't seem that they both could be correct. But back to the monument. The steel represents the first important pictorial of war in the Sumerian period. The steel of vultures portrays the king of Lagash leading an infantry column of armored, helmeted warriors, armed with spears, trampling their enemies. The king, himself armed with an axe, rides a chariot drawn by four donkeys. In a lower panel, Tuam holds a sickle sword. The steel also demonstrates that the Sumerian troops fought in what is generally referred to as a phalanx formation, organized into a square, six rows deep, and eight soldiers across. A similar formation was used in ancient Greece. But fighting in a phalanx requires training and discipline, and this monument implies that the men in this battle were either well-trained or perhaps professional soldiers. The typical armies of the era were men brought together to meet a temporary crisis. These temporary armies were found, for example, in Egypt, during the period of the Old Dynasty, which existed at about the same time. Some of the knowledge concerning this organization is known from the instructions of Shuruppak, dated to around 2600 BC. These were found on clay tablets in the region and date to about the 3rd millennium BC, Even at this early date, the kings of the city-states provided for the maintenance of 600 to 700 soldiers on a full-time basis. This provision of military equipment for the soldiers was borne by the king. But of course, he got his money, food, and goods, one way or another, from the people. Previously, and especially with the amateur armies, the individual soldiers were responsible for providing their own gear and weapons. Overall, the steel provides the first evidence in human history of a standing professional army. The first historical evidence of soldiers wearing helmets is also provided on that steel. In addition, from the bodies of soldiers found in the so-called Death Pits of Ur that date to around 2500 BC, we know that these helmets were made of copper and most likely had a leather liner or cap underneath. As an aside, these so-called death pits were uncovered by Leonard Woolley, who I covered a few episodes ago. The appearance of the helmets marks the first defensive response to the killing power of the mace, a significant offensive weapon of the period, and probably the oldest effective weapon of war. It was an extremely brutal weapon against a soldier with no protection for the head, but in Sumer. The presence of a well-crafted helmet indicated a major development in military technology that was so effective that it likely drove the mace from the battlefield, at least for a time. First military application of the wheel is also shown on the steel. It shows Yenotum riding in a chariot. The Sumerians also invented the wheeled cart, which became the standard vehicle for logistical transport in the Middle East until the time of Alexander the Great. The Sumerian invention of the chariot ranks among the major military inventions in human history. The Sumerian chariot was usually a four-wheeled vehicle, but there were also two-wheeled varieties shown in other records. The four-wheeled wagon required four donkeys to pull it. Some sources claim that these were not donkeys, but onagers, a type of wild donkey. But then again, onagers are notoriously hard to tame. The Sumerians are also credited with inventing the rain ring for use with the chariot in order to give the driver some control over the donkeys. There is a belief, despite what the steel shows, that at this early stage of development, the chariot probably was not a major offensive weapon because of its size, weight, and instability. It also may not have been produced in great quantities. Later, however... In the hands of the Hyksus, Hittites, Canaanites, Egyptians, and Assyrians, the chariot became the primary striking vehicle of the later Bronze and early Iron Age armies. Chariot drivers, archers, and spearmen were to become the elite fighting force of the ancient world. The lower portion of the steel of vultures shows the king holding a sickle sword. The sickle sword was the primary infantry weapon of the Egyptian and biblical armies at a much later date. When the Bible speaks of people being smoted, or in some locations, it's rendered in the present tense as smite, the reference is probably to the sickle sword. Now, granted, many of the approximately 130 times the word smite is used in the Bible is figurative, but then again, in many instances, it is not. For a weapon to take on a figurative sense, you know it had to be an effective implement. I'll post a photo of the sickle sword on the Facebook page, too. The fact that the sickle sword appears on two independent renderings of the same period suggests strongly that the Sumerians invented this important weapon sometime around 2500 BC. The steel also shows Ionetum's soldiers wearing what appeared to be armored cloaks. Each cloak was secured around the neck. It was made either of cloth, or more likely, thin leather. Metal discs with raised centers or spines were sewn onto the cloak. Although somewhat primitive in application, the cloak was the first representation of body armor and would have afforded decent protection against the weapons of the period. Later, the Sumerians introduced overlapping plate body armor. Other Sumerian archaeological finds show additional examples of important military innovations a carved conch plate shows the King of Ur armed with what is called a socket axe. The development of the bronze socket axe is viewed as another one of Sumer's major military innovations, one that conferred a significant military advantage. Ancient axe makers had difficulty attaching the axe blade to the wooden shaft that made up the handle, with sufficient strength to allow it to remain attached when striking a heavy blow. The use of the cast bronze socket which slipped over the head of the shaft and could be secured with a form of rivet, permitted a stronger attachment of the blade to the shaft. It is likely that the need for a stronger axe arose in response to the development of some type of body armor that made the cutting axes less effective as a military instrument. Maybe it was armored cloaks. Later Sumerian axes worked with an improved design. The most significant change was a narrowing of the blade so as to reduce the impact area and bring the axe to more of a point. The development marks the beginning of the penetrating axe, whose narrow blade and strong socket made it capable of piercing bronze plate armor. The result was a weapon that remained in use for nearly 2,000 years. If you're like me, and who knows, I may be the only person who is like me, But I was wondering why the development of such military weaponry occurred in Sumer, and not in other societies, such as Egypt. In the ancient world, military technology arose in response to experiences on the battlefield. In Sumer, the 2,000 or so years of war among the city-states provided ample opportunity for innovation. Other countries, such as Egypt, were isolated from major enemies by geography and culture. Specifically, Egypt had the Mediterranean to the north, the Sahara to the south and west, and the Sinai to the east. As such, there was little need to innovate military technologies faster than their enemies. The weapons of Egypt, as a result, remained far behind developments in Sumer. This was because they were adequate to the task at hand. In other words, the status quo was good enough to win, as infrequent as need be. There was no requirement to develop body armor, the helmet, or the penetrating axe when one's enemies did not possess this technology either. The period following Tuam's death was characterized by more war, a situation that led to a relatively even development of weapon technology throughout the city states of Sumer. It was probably as simple as one city state seeing armor or a chariot or a sickle sword for the first time and being able to produce their own such weapons within a few days. 200 years after Ionatoum, King Lugolzagasi of Uma succeeded in establishing his influence over all Sumer. although there is no evidence that he introduced any significant changes. 24 years later, the empire of Lugolzagasi was destroyed by the forces of a Semitic prince from a northern city of Akkad. The Sumerians and Akkadians are believed to have had the most sophisticated armies of the Bronze Age. As I covered a few episodes ago, in 2300 BC, Sargon the Great of Akkad launched a campaign of military conquest that united all of Mesopotamia. Within a decade, Sargon had extended his conquest from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea and northeastward to the Taurus Mountains of Turkey. Sargon is believed to have been the first military dictatorship in world history. Through military force, he conquered all the Sumerian states, the entire Tigris-Euphrates Basin, and brought into being an empire that stretched from the Taurus Mountains to the Persian Gulf. He united both halves of Mesopotamia for the first time since about 4000 BC. As with most early Sumerian kings, we know very little about Sargon himself. Cuneiform records indicate that during his 50-year reign, he fought no fewer than 34 wars. One ancient account suggests that at its height, his professional military numbered 5,400 men. If true, then Sargon's standing army would have been the largest army up until that point in history. But given the geographic breadth of his kingdom, such a large force isn't terribly extraordinary. Previous to his uniting of the kingdom, the various city-states did not require forces nearly as large to maintain control. It seems, at least to me, fairly obvious that Sargon's army would have been built on the backs of professional soldiers considering the generally constant state of war of his reign. While it may have started with conscription, within a short time these soldiers would have become battle-hardened veterans. Not only that, but equipping an army of this size would have necessitated a high degree of military organization to manufacture the weapons and organize the logistics of feeding and housing. During his reign, the Akkadians contributed yet another major innovation to military armament, namely the composite bow. This likely occurred during the reign of Sargon's grandson, Naramsin, who ruled between 2254 and 2218 BC. Like grandfather, like grandson, Naramsin fought continuous wars of suppression and conquest. His victory over the Lullaby, who are from the Zargos Mountains, is commemorated in a rock sculpture that shows naram armed with a composite bow. This rendering marks the first appearance of the composite bow in history, and strongly suggests that it was of Akkadian origin. The bow was a major military innovation. While the previous generation of a simple bow could strike down the enemy at a range of about 50 to 100 yards, which is between about 46 and 91 meters, but the arrow velocity was so low that it could not penetrate even simple armor at this distance. The composite bow, with a pull force of two to three times that of the simple bow, could easily penetrate the leather armor of the era. It may also have been capable of penetrating the early forms of bronze armor that were emerging at this time. Even in the literal hands of a minimally trained, recently conscripted archer, the composite bow could rain down a hail of arrows on enemies from twice the distance as that of the simple bow. Just as the English would do when facing the Spanish Armada thousands of years later, the army could stay just out of the range of the simple bowmen of their enemies and unleash their fury. And with that, the simple bow became obsolete. The composite bow was such a significant innovation that it remained a basic implement of war in all armies of the region for the next 1,500 years. In fact, it was probably this bow that the Philistines used to strike down King Saul in the 11th century BC, as found in 1 Samuel, chapter 31. The armies of Sumer and Akkad represented the zenith of military development in the Bronze Age, There was no other army of the same period that could equal the Sumerians in military effectiveness and weaponry. Overall, the Sumerian civilization produced no fewer than six major new weapons and defensive systems, all of which set the standard for other armies of the Bronze and Iron Ages. Conversely, the armies of Egypt were already 1,000 years old by the time of Sargon, but were technologically inferior to the Sumerians. They would remain so until the two societies came into regular contact and the Egyptians adopted the weapons and tactics of the Sumerians. And upon doing so, they forged the next significant military force. Few armies in history have been so innovative. In my mind, the only other periods that saw such a revolution in the manner in which wars were fought would be with the advent of firearms, and even more so the period between 1860 and 1960 A.D., that saw repeating arms, motorized battle vehicles, aircraft, and nuclear weaponry. So that's the episode for this week in the end of the Sumerians. Next week, I'll begin the history of the Elamites. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, also be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they're released. Go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Of all the requests I make, this is probably the most important. A greater number of reviews increases the ranking, which in turn makes it easier for other listeners to find it. Also, one new request. If you recall how you initially found this podcast, such as the term you searched for that brought you here, send me a message via Facebook and let me know what led you here. This will allow me to fine-tune the web presence of the series. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.